Hello, and welcome to the Magic Music Review Podcast. I'm Jim Spangler, your host. Join me each episode as we talk about our love of Disney music. It could be a song, a movie, a short film, a Broadway show, a Disney theme park, or one of the countless other forms Disney music takes. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the journey through the magic of Disney music on the Magic Music Review. Hey everyone, it's Jim Spangler here. I just wanted to give you a quick introduction of this podcast today. Uh, It is, again... The Hunchback of Notre Dame, only this time we're talking about the stage version. Uh, Aaron Kaplan is my guest again. Such a great guest, such great knowledge and information that he brings to the podcast and so much fun to have on the podcast. Um, It is a little bit longer than usual. It's kind of the same length as the last one, maybe a little bit shorter. Uh, And there are still some technical issues, uh, so just bear with me. It is better than the last one, but um, I just kind of wanted to warn you that I do know you don't have to tell me. So enjoy. Hey, everybody. Jim Spangler here on the Magic Music Review Podcast, Season 2, Episode 2, because I did decide at the last podcast that we were actually going to make this a second season because I had such a long break in there. Um, I have my friend Aaron Kaplan back with me today. As you know, great musician, educator, orchestrator, arranger, uh, music director extraordinaire. Oh, thank you. Yeah, very. You're very welcome. Well, I've worked with a lot of music directors, and you're one of my favorites. Well, thank you. Appreciate so, um, when you're 50, you've worked with a lot of people. Um, <laughs> that's. I don't know if that's good or bad. Hey, <laughs> so, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. And this is a continuation of our last episode. Yes. Really, um, we won't tell anybody that we're really recording it right after. The first episode. True. Because <laughs> getting us together is hard. That's true. Yeah. It's like uh, The Tonight Show. You know, people don't know that they tape two shows on Thursday. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because if you look at the audience, the audience is wearing the same clothes. Yes. Yeah. Same yeah. people, too. It's the same people, too. Yeah. Well, same clothes, same people. That would make sense, yeah. right? Yeah. But we're here to talk about Hunchback again. We just, we just spent a good hour and a half talking about uh, the animated motion picture, uh, Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame. But we're going to talk about something else that... Disney did, kind of claims, kind of doesn't claim. It's an interesting life for yes. this. This is the musical, the stage adaptation of this movie. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have uh, really two different versions of this. Mm-hmm. We have a German version, right. which we talked about and mentioned in the last episode, which ran for almost three years in Germany, mm-hmm. toured, and was extremely popular. Yeah. Um, I mean, three years on Broadway would be a huge hit. Yeah. Uh, that's a huge, that's totally. a huge run. Yeah. Uh, there are, there are musicals that win best musical that don't run for three years. Right. Um, many of them. And many, most of them actually, yeah. most of them. And then they did another version of it mm-hmm. that premiered at the La Jolla Playhouse right. out in San Diego. Uh, so let's start, but how did this all come about? I mean, how did this, what, where did these, you know, how did this happen? Yeah. So I think... Well, the, the first person we should talk about is Thomas Schumacher, who is the head of Disney Theatricals, which is their, all, obviously owned by the Disney company, but their offshoot, their theatrical division. And he's in charge of all of the theatrical properties that Disney creates and licenses. Um, and when Hunchback came out in 96, they were, the, obviously they had their first huge smashing hit with Beauty and the Beast, the stage adaptation. So that was their first, that was the first Disney theatrical production, and 
a whopping, you know, ran for 13 years and toured a gazillion places. And it's every, every high school and their mother does it. So it's still a big property for them. So they were... Um, we're talking about Germany. No, I'm losing my time. Oh, yeah. sorry. So after, um, so after that, they started working on The Lion King, which was another very obvious... It's still running 20 plus, 21 years now. Right. That was Julie Taymor's... Um, masterpiece. Masterpiece inspired vision. Yeah. And um, by this point, Thomas Schumacher had originally worked in the animation department at Disney. He was one of their chief executives. Um, and, you know, he, he was really a, 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 theat- a theater guy, a theatrical person. So when Disney said, you know, we need someone in charge of running our Broadway division, you know, they moved him from animation to, um, to Broadway. So they were looking for another property to create a musical for after... Mm-hmm. They're now they have two huge smashing successes successes running simultaneously on Broadway. Right. I'm gonna move this mic a little bit closer. Oh, sorry. That's okay. I just want to make sure we're getting you. I'm, we need I'm, to hear. I'm, I'm these, reclining. These jewels of information, right? <laughs> I don't know about jewels, but the the, the, the product of uh, of of nerdiness. I, I suppose. I love that. That's what this podcast is all about. That's right. So they um, they looked at. At Hunchback, which was probably at the time an unlikely option, because as we discussed in our other episode, it was not the most commercially successful. Right. Film. It only made I think a hundred million domestically. Right. Um, three twenty-five worldwide, which compared to the, you know, six and seven hundred million that Beating the Beast made, and right, you know, eight hundred million that The Lion King made wasn't near as successful. Um, but again, like we talked about, the score is so. It's compelling, and the characters are very. It's a very compelling story. So, I think they wanted to take a chance with this, again, a more adult themed property, mm-hmm. and they decided to to create it in Europe, and it was it was going to be their first project that they were going to develop overseas, and um, there's a now correct me yes. if I'm wrong. Part of that reason probably was because it's cheaper. Undoubtedly, it is cheaper. Um, and I believe a, I, I forget the name of the company, but it was a, but Britain, or not Britain, um, Europe was is always looking to kind of bring musicals over, over there, because it's kind of a commodity, because they don't really have musical theater. Right. I mean, they do in London, obviously, but, right. but in Hamburg, musicals are really big in Germany, in Berlin, in Hamburg, um, and other places. So uh, this international company was looking to bring some Broadway-type entertainment over to, in this case, it was going to be Berlin. And so Disney said, why don't we try it? And they also thought that because um, Victor Hugo was European um, and it takes place in France, so there would be a, a more of a, a tie thematically to that. And also they thought European audiences would be better at dealing with the adult content of Hunchback. Because it's a, it's a much darker story than... Much darker. Than, you know... And let's face it, Europeans are a little more mature than we are. Yeah, so, yeah, just in general. <laughs> yeah, and they probably have a they have a better feeling appreciation for the history of the novel yeah, too. Exactly. So they um they brought on um Stephen Schwartz Allen and James Lapine, the brilliant, wonderful James Lapine, uh, who would be sometimes or was already at that point sometimes collaborator, really um from Sunday in the Park with George on, right? Um, through Passion and um, Into the Woods, and Lapine also has a relationship with William Finn, so. Spelling Bee and Falsetto Land and all those great shows. So Lapine is a, a really big figure in American musical theater. So Lapine was brought on to write the book 
and to direct this version. Mm-hmm. And um, Mencken and Schwartz have said that this is one of their favorite scores, so they really love the opportunity to expand the score um, and kind of produce it in Berlin. So um, if you look at the Wikipedia page, there's a lot of really great information. They taught in they taught the show in English first and then retaught it to German in, in German. Um, they wrote nine new songs for the stage adaptation. A lot of those songs were retained for the iteration from a couple years ago, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, so they wrote some new songs. There were some changes to the film. Um, they changed the name of the gargoyles to uh, Charles, Antoine, and Lonnie, which is a little inside joke because those are names of previous actors who've played Quasimodo in other film versions of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I love that. I know. I, I mean, that's really clever. Because Victor Hugo and Laverne were right. also an inside joke. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, but and the gargoyles in this version both provide comedic relief, but they're really more figments of his imagination in that version. Which, I guess you could argue, in the animated film, it sort of was, too, because, you know, they are his only friends. Right, so. they're his only, his, his only friends, right. Um, and I think the biggest thing is, and this is a spoiler, so if you don't want to know how the musical adaptations end, then skip ahead a few seconds. Um, but, as in the novel, they retain the original ending, which is that Esmeralda does die. Right. Um, so, it's certainly a darker version of... Of the story and more accurate to the original novel so for all those reasons they set it in they produced it in berlin and it was a huge hit in berlin it ran for three years um they uh had a huge orchestra every night with like 45 musicians and that's pit. huge now let's talk about that yes because that is mammoth it is mammoth that the, is mammoth because a, a full orchestra on broadway is what 25 these days, you're lucky if you can get 18. Well, and 18 is the contract, right? I mean, there's a there's a limit. The yeah, union has said there's a... There's a minimum. There's and a it, minimum. It depends on the size of the house. But there are exceptions to that. Like, for example, Book of Mormon, which plays in a huge house, only has seven. Right. Because they made some deal with the union or something. Right. Um, right. But, but the point being... Right. This orchestra is huge. Yeah. I mean, the right now the revival of My Fair Lady has the original, which is twenty nine, and that's and by, that's huge. By Broadway standards, you won't find more than twenty nine. Where are they putting twenty nine people? I don't know that there's a pit in Broadway that's big enough anymore. The Vivian Beaumont. There you go. Because real pits, there's the pit, but then it goes under the stage. Right. So right. you know, depending on how the stage is set up, you know, this stage. Um, it goes up, but the stage pulls back and re- during the overture reveals the majesty of a 29-piece orchestra. Yeah. And then it pushes forward again. Yeah. And then continues the action. Wow. <laughs> so to have... That's crazy. Now, first of all, I mean, the arts are just more supported in Europe than they are in America. Yes. Um, because everything in America is publicly subsidized. It's concert um, ticket sales and private sponsorships, and then that's it. In, um, in Europe... Most of the important arts organizations, and I'm talking opera houses, concert venues, um, art museums, are all subsidized by the government because the government supports the arts. Mm-hmm. So everything right. is, there's there's an arts budget that's not laughable, much like 
the, excuse me, the, the U.S. $100 million, you know, budget for the National Endowment for the Arts, which is 0.02% of the national yeah. budget of the United States. That's, cr- that's crazy. Yeah. That's great. We could have, we could have a whole conversation about that. Yeah. So to have a 45 piece orchestra every night for three and a half years is expensive. And it was, it's amazing that they got that, but this score requires it. It's so huge. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get to hear some of that. Yeah. As we go here. Definitely. So the, you said they taught it in English and then translated it into German. Yes. I c- can you even imagine that process? No. Like that no. is beyond me. I can understand writing it in e- English, translating it to German, and then teaching it. Right. But as right. A, but as an actor. Right. I can't imagine. I I would imagine that a lot of them, a lot of the people they had were. American. Yes. And then they, yeah. you know, at least the first version. Yeah, I've had a lot of friends that have gone over and worked in Europe. Oh, yeah. On tours and such. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I guess because they really wanted to know what they were saying. Yeah, well, they it's, it it's a little important, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a little important. So um, they really expanded the score. They did. Like, majorly expanded. They added music. Um, mm-hmm. Really beautifully, beautifully done. Um, and... Uh, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on the German version, mm-hmm. but I think it's important that everybody understand right. that piece of it, right? It's important that they see the picture of where we're going with this right? Uh, and where the arc of this beautiful piece of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the list and I personally have never listened to the German. You're holding the CD in your hand. I am. Um, and I personally have never listened to it, but I'm looking at this and there is a lot in here and the gypsies are really prominent Yes, they in are. This, um, which I love that the gypsies are prominent because that's, you know, where the joy and color I think comes from, right? Yeah, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I think so. Um, some of the songs, uh, well, a couple things to note. So the the gypsies play a prominent role, as do the gargoyles, um, and so some songs that that were written for this that stayed in the American version twenty years later. Um, there's the song Esmeralda, which was written originally for the, what's called Der Glockner von Notre Dame, which is right. the bell ringer of Notre Dame in German. Um, so Esmeralda was written and, and stayed. Um, Made of Stone was uh, written and stayed over the world, uh, stayed over into the different right. uh, version. Um, a couple differences. So the song A Guy Like You from the movie was in the German version. Um, and Made of Stone had a had a also had the gargoyles in it so it had a, a couple different layers working there not just feeling like you're made of stone but actually the gargoyles are actually made, made, of, made of stone, stone. Made right of stone. <laughs> right um so uh it it retained a little bit of the of the comedicness that the film had yes. and again because it was still a, a disney theatrical property um but it was certainly darker because they did, you know, Esmeralda did die at the end. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, tons of music, um, a lot of reprises. Uh, again, kind of keeping of reprises. this this um, melodic idea of melodies um, corresponding to different characters and ideas, you know, repetitive right. throughout the show. Right, thematically, yeah, thematic use. But yeah, it's a huge, you know, I'm looking at this instrumentation. Uh, and the, the instrumentation that they show on the... Um, on Wikipedia, if you're looking at the Wikipedia to tell you how inaccurate Wikipedia can be, the A Guy Like You, they say, is done by Hugo Laverne and Victor and Quasimodo, 
But then the Maid of Stone is done by Quasimodo, Lonnie, Charles, and Antoine. So, you know, Wikipedia thanks. Uh, and all the people that go out there and think that they know what they're talking about. Um, so anyway, but the instrumentation shows a much smaller orchestra, even though it is still a big orchestra by today's standards, still a small, a smaller one than, than they actually used, uh, as far as just parts. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Disney theatricals has created a German version of Hunchback of Notre Dame. It's extremely popular. Mm -hmm. And I know that the theater world of of the United States is screaming for it. Yeah. Like they are, I remember when it was over in Germany and people just being like, you have to bring this over and do this. It has yeah. to come to Broadway. This is brilliant. You need to do it. What happened? Well, you know, there, there aren't, there isn't one concrete reason why it didn't happen. I think one reason is it would be very expensive because it's much more expensive to put up a show on Broadway than yeah. it is anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Because, well, Broadway's saturated. you got 40 shows running at once versus right. in Berlin, this is the one. Yeah. You know, yeah. the of type of this entertainment happening. Um, I think part of it was there was a concern about whether an American audience would want to see a darker version. And Disney being cognizant of its uh, place in family entertainment... Absolutely. You know, it's, it's something to consider. Whether you like it or not, that right. is, it is it is a fact. Right. And, you know, quite frankly, Tom Schumacher was dealing with a lot of other potential things at that time. You know, right. He and Cameron McIntosh were in talks for what would eventually become Mary Poppins. They were working on the beginnings of a Little Mermaid adaptation. Um, not so brilliant. Not so brilliant. Although, <laughs> although, I will say, I'm working on the show right now. I will say, I think the music that they added to the Little Mermaid score to expand the score is some of is better than the Aladdin adaptation. I agree with that. I will agree with that. And some of the Beauty and the Beast additions. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But like the If Only Quartet, I mean is Yeah. You can't get better than the If Only yeah. Quartet. Yeah. Um, yeah. Better than than Tarzan, but we won't speak of you would, we don't speak of we Tarzan. won't speak of Tarzan. We don't speak of Tarzan. Well, I'm not sure we'll ever speak of Tarzan on this podcast. That's that's okay. That was really the <laughs> that was really the end of the Disney Renaissance, wasn't it? It was at the end of a lot. <laughs> um, but uh, so for for whatever reason, it just it didn't make its way over here, and for a long time, people you know, kind of like with Newsies, people really wanted it. You know, it had a big kind of a cult following yeah it, it really did because i remember people saying oh i got the german version i got the german version right. I, it was really a big cult thing yeah and for any of you hunchback fans out there you can still buy the german cd on amazon that's where i bought mine it is not on itunes i'm telling you now i just looked for it before we did this podcast they had there's a lot of hunchback out there not the german version no not of this not of this um so definitely it, it is is worth it just to hear that big of an orchestra with great... I mean, they're great singers, too. I of mean, course they are. They're wonderful actors and performers on the, on the recording. And to see what a... Or to hear what a, you know, Lapine collaboration with these two giants would yeah. have been. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, the, it, it, it never made its way over here, but I'll, there was always talk about it. And, again, the thing that I keep coming to in in watching interviews with the creators is it was all about... Everyone was always worried that it was going to be too dark for an American audience. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. so then fast forward. Fast forward a few years. We're starting to get little hints 
from Stephen Schwartz mm-hmm. and from Alan Menken. They're yes. starting to say things that Hunchback is coming. Yes. Hunchback is coming. Yes. That, you know, uh, in 2010, Alan Menken finally confirmed that it was coming uh, and that they would use the Lapine book. Right. And they finally produced it with a new book, mm-hmm. actually. Right. Uh, and it was Peter Parnell that wrote the new book. Uh, still Mankin and Schwartz doing the songs. Uh, a lot from the original movie. Uh, but they added quite a bit. Uh, a lot of it taken from the German production, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, And then we finally had a workshop in February of 2014. Yes. In La Jolla. And the theater world, my theater friends, went ape. Totally. I mean, totally went ape. Mm-hmm. Um, about it, yeah. uh, me included. But tell us, can, do you, what do you know about kind of that that happening? Because they talked about it for a long time before something actually happened. Yeah, there was a lot of talk, and I think a lot of it was about whether or not to do the Lapine version. Or it, I, I think now Disney is pretty good at you know covering up whatever things they don't want uncovered. Yeah. So I imagine that there was a lot of conflict um, about which book version of the book was going to be used, uh, how dark we they were going to get. And there was probably some disagreement on that. Obviously, the Disney theatricals wanting to maintain their family entertainment, you know, appearance, probably wanted it to end happier than it does. And the creators probably wanted to be more honest to the original. Right. So the other thing that happened between the German and the American mm-hmm. version of this is that Disney disassociated themselves from it. Yeah. They, they they pretty much said, yeah, you can't say this is Disney's hunchback. Right. They, you know, it's interesting. They Tom Schumacher was involved very peripherally. You know, because at the end of the day, it's still, you know, Disney owns the copyright. So if Disney really wanted to shut it down, then they would have. Yeah. But I think they worked out an agreement where, because if you look at, now we're talking about what's called the the studio cast recording from 2016. Right. Um, they, it says, adapted from the Victor Hugo novel and the Disney film. Correct. So it does say that. It doesn't say, it's not Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. It is not. Unlike Disney's Beauty and the Beast, Disney's The Little Mermaid, Disney's The Lion King. Disney likes to put their name in front of anything that's theirs. Right. So by doing this, they're saying, yes, it's still a Disney property, but it is not housed. It was not produced by Disney theatricals. Right. And that's important. Yes. That's really important. Big distinction. Yeah. Because my next question was actually going to be, how did Mencken and Schwartz Mm -hmm. make this happen? Right. I mean, because if Disney's like, I don't know about this, you know, they could have pulled the plug and then they would have been stuck. Um, right. I also think that's part of the reason that they probably rewrote the book. Yes. To to kind of edit out... I mean, there's nothing they can do about the parts that were Victor Hugo. Right. Right. But they certainly could control the part of the story that was purely Disney, which was a lot of it. Because right. it's just a very skeleton of the Victor Hugo. Right. Um, which most Disney things are. Right. Just a Skeletons skeleton. of the original. Yeah. That's exactly right. Uh, do you have any feeling of... Any thought of how that took place? Now, let's... I mean, keeping in mind that... You know, one of the obvious things is that Alan Menken is is Alan Menken. Right. And, and Eight Oscars. That's exactly right. The same as Walt Disney. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, that carries weight in and of itself. Yeah. I think a big part of this was, so before Hunchback, um, they started doing developmental workshops of Newsies. Yeah. And Newsies was 
not meant to go to Broadway. Ever. Ever. Um, for those of you that don't know, um, I, I think everybody that was listening to this podcast probably knows, but Newsies was a uh, movie musical that was made and has a huge cult following. And everybody always wanted it brought to stage, mm-hmm. thought it was would have been great on stage, and then finally was brought to stage at Paper Mill. Yeah. Uh, no, no intention of ever no taking intention. it to Broadway. Uh, so much so that the set was minimal. And if you see the show now, they still use the same kind of set. It's scaffolding. Yeah. Minimal set, minimal production value, um, but had such a huge response that they brought it to Broadway. Right. Yeah, and keyword being cult following because it made like eight million dollars at the box office. Yeah, it was, a, it was a flop with a capital F. It was, and and you know, it Razzies for it's worst hard. movie of the year. It did, and it's hard to watch. I'll be honest with you. While the musical numbers are fun, the movie itself is hard to watch. <laughs> yeah. So, so you have key being Alan Menken. So they 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 put up different versions of Newsies, and then it goes to Broadway, wins a Tony for best score, his first right. Tony for best, and his only Tony for best for best score, score which is mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's that. You also have Aladdin, which is being developed again, not necessarily for Broadway, right? In Seattle um, and Toronto, at different productions, but was so good and got such great applause that it opened on Broadway. In fact, they closed Mary Poppins to open it on they Broadway. They did, which is tragic and wonderful at the same time, because I love the Aladdin musical. I think it's so much fun. It's so entertaining. Yeah. And it just makes you happy. My friend Courtney Reed was Jasmine for the five years from the original. Nice. And she just stepped down. Nice. Yeah, and it's just, I just find it, like, it's not a great piece of art. I mean, we're not going to fool ourselves into thinking it's a great piece of art. But it's fun. But it's fun, and, and it's well everybody done. is joyful and happy and jubilant when they come out. Yeah. Which, in my opinion, is worth something. Right. So, so again, Alan Menken, second time, and another situation where, you know what, let's just see where it goes. doesn't have to end up on Broadway. We could just license it for amateur and stock mm-hmm. rights mm-hmm. and make a gazillion dollars that way. Yeah. And then now you have a third one involving Alan Menken. Yeah. So I th- see. I didn't put all those pieces together when thinking about it. Yeah. So I think it was like you know what you guys are really passionate about this. This is and I think by by letting them do it, Tom Schumacher was giving them their blessing to do it. Yeah. We're not going to say Disney's the Hunchback, but we could we'll say adapted from the Disney film. Yeah. And Victor Hugo novel. Now are they listed? And I don't have this information. Mm-hmm. Are they listed as producers? Is Disney a producer? Uh, you know what? I'd have to look. I have to look that up. I'd have to look on a program. We're gonna have to look that up. Yeah. We'll 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 edit that in. We will edit that because in. I'm interested to know if Disney is listed as a producer. Yeah. Of that, um, they're obviously not the lead producer because when Disney produces something, they are the top. They are it. Everyone knows. That's right. So Disney said. So Schumacher said, "You have our blessing. Go do this." I think so. Um, and you know, Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz are big enough names oh yeah that they could raise the money for it oh totally they could find producers for it and to like they could just pick up make one call and they would have 10 producers right. waiting in line and here's the especially kick- after wicked we have to remember stephen schwartz has wicked running on broadway while still. it didn't still and while it didn't win best musical is such a huge mega hit it's still selling out the house yeah oh yeah and touring and touring and the tours are still selling out yeah so um so schwartz while he had cachet and weight for his earlier stuff, has exploded. Totally. All of a sudden. Yeah. So now you have Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz yeah. pushing this. Right. But the key really relies, really lies with Scott Schwartz, Stephen's son. Really? Who directed the show. 
I did not know that. Scott Schwartz had a vision. And obviously he grew up with the score. He's a director. Um, well, well-respected director in Broadway and off-Broadway. He had a vision for a show in which there was a chorus. There is a choir. Right. And we have a choir that acts as the Greek choir, but we have a, a huge, massive choir that sings all the the Latin stuff. All the Latin stuff. And then you really have a four-person story. Right. So now let's stop there for a yes. second. When you talk about... This is one of the first big red flags about producing this on Broadway. Yes. The size of the production. And we're not talking about the physical production of this musical. Right. We're talking about the number of people right. in this. Yeah. That so, all they're doing is standing and singing. Right. That's huge money. It's incredibly expensive. Yes. And that, and so you have this choir, and then you have an ensemble of, let's say, 14 people, and then four leads. Right. So this is becoming a massive, massive thing. show. And it becomes evident, I think, to the Disney people that it's probably not going to be the most profitable thing. Yeah. Because the content, it's not going to have draw names like Beauty and the Beast. Yes. It's an expensive show. It's an intimate show. And it's hard to get stuff done on Broadway. So yeah. that's probably why... And Scott Schwartz, obviously, his dad being involved, um, had such a passion for this... I, that's why I think Tom Schumacher said, you know what, you have our blessing, create the artistic thing that you want, and we'll just license it for stock and amateur rights. Yeah, which we'll get to. Which we will get to. We will get to, because that's an interesting piece of this story, too. Yes. Um, so, awesome. That is so much information I had no idea yeah. about. I love it. I love it. Um, you know, because to be honest with you, with this one, all I'm, I'm just like, I just love the music. I just love listening to it. Right. Um, it's my go-to for Hunchback. Mm -hmm. Um, if I'm on, if I'm in the Hunchback mood, I go to this recording. Yeah. Of it. I think the recording is brilliant. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Um, I think it is so masterfully done and it, uh, just shows the beauty of this music. It enhances the beauty of this music that we talked a lot about, mm -hmm. uh, in the first, in our right. first episode. Right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of new. There's a lot that's not new. Yeah. Um, one song that I think is interesting in this mm -hmm. um, is the Phoebus song towards the beginning. Yes. When he talks about why he's in Paris mm -hmm. and how he's been off into the military forever. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason I like it is besides it's 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 got some humor in it. Yes. Um, is it really? We understand Phoebus a lot more. Yes. He no longer is just the stereotypical... Disney prince. Yeah, Disney prince. Yes. That's exactly Two right. Two-dimensional, right. Right. He really goes... Uh, we really get a, an in-depth look of what his life yes. has been. And why it would be important for him to be in Paris right now. Right. You know, we place him there. Yes. Uh, and really get that. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of that. Great. Four years at the front. Give a man a zest. For a little rest and recreation For the chance to hunt For the spiciest In the way of rest and recreation Give me your girls of pleasure Your grapes of Merlot Show me your wares and measure One large sample Sample them at my leisure This three-day furlough should be Born the brunt of a soldier's test. Now I've made my way where I get to play at rest and recreation. 
Four years at the front Four years at the front Ten and fodder lying in the field below the castle Is this the third week or the fourth week of the siege? The air filled with a stench of bodies in a trench Whoever pays the most I call my liege Summon dear to so, uh, so that's great. I love, um, I just love that piece. I just think it's, it's really well done and just fun. Mm-hmm. There, you know, there's no, let's be real. It's not, if they took it out of the show, the show would have been fine. Mm-hmm. Honestly. Yeah. Honestly. I, I, but I, but it definitely enhances and makes a more rounded Phoebus, which he needed. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, it, it does exactly what needed to be done for Phoebus, which is a little bit more character development. We need to know him a little bit more. Yeah, because if you're going to have him on stage and be one of the primaries, right? Stage is not movies. Stage is not movies. And and it and it makes a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. You know, we just did a reading where we had a lot of characters that were not developed, and our favorite character was the character that had ten lines and was the most developed. Right. Right. So um, it, it makes a huge it makes a huge difference. But I but I love that piece. Um, we still have Topsy Turvy in there. Um, we still have Sanctuary mm-hmm. in there. Uh, the Bells of Notre Dame, obviously. God help the outcasts. Um, so, what are your what's your thought of God help the outcasts on this? Do you do we need to listen to it to kind of remind us of what that is? I think we should always listen to it. I don't know if you can hear me or if you're even there. I don't know if you would listen to a gypsy's prayer. Yes, I know I'm just an outcast. I shouldn't speak to you. Still, I see your face and wonder, were you once an outcast too? Uh, the reason I bring this up is, first off, I think that uh, vocally it's obviously different. You have a you have a you have a Broadway actress singing as opposed to a cabaret star, right? Uh, which is different. Mm-hmm. It's a different interpretation. It's a different purpose, right? Um, but one thing they do in this is um, they have all that wonderful stuff in the background that we talked about, mm-hmm. but they use it differently. Yeah. They they it's it's not the subtle background juxtaposition, right. is it? No. What are they doing? Well, I think, you know, it, it, it... I'm throwing that out. You're... Here, just just tell me what Alan's doing. Yeah. Just give him his break. Well, it <laughs> it shows the... First, from the way the beginning is orchestrated, it's not as subtle as the film. Mm-hmm. And as it builds, it has... I don't want to say it's cheesy, but it... But it's, it's cheesy. It doesn't build the same way it does in the movie. The film, the the way it happens in the film is a, a very intimate and subtle moment. And here it seems a little too, quote unquote, Broadway. Well, I think my issue is that you know in the in the movie, um, in the animated movie, they they let Esmeralda 
build the song to its high point. And they use the back, they use the people with the blessings that they're asking for almost as background. It's almost like we want you to hear this because we need to understand that Esmeralda, what she's doing is really altruistic and she's really an altruistic character. In the stage adaptation, the background is what builds to the crescendo. Right. That's what brings it over the... That's what takes us over the top. Yeah. I don't think that works. Not... I don't think it works as well. Right. You know, it's hard to... Without seeing what's happening, it's hard to say. And since neither of us saw the paper mill or the La Jolla versions of it... We did. But if any of us want to fly to the next production, professional production, we'll be happy to go. That's right. Or as a bootleg. (laughs) I mean, I didn't say that. Um, So I... I think I might feel different if I saw it. Yeah. It, it might. Also, the way that this, the way that it is, it sounds very produced in that moment. Yes, it does. And it might not be as overwhelmingly present. Yeah. In that's a, a good version. point. So, that's a good point. It's hard to tell in a recording, right? Yeah. Yeah. Live is always better. Yeah. There are some, there's some other interesting differences in this version of the, um, of the show in the stage adaptation. So for one, Quasimodo speaks differently. Yes. His speaking is kind of slurred speech. It's very affected. Very affected. But his singing is not. That's right. And the decision, Michael Arden, who played uh, Quasimodo, the decision for that was because when Quasi sings, it's his internal monologue. It's in his head. When he's singing out there, he's singing. It's his internal monologue. So the idea that that's how he sounds in his head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's listen to a little bit of that. Let's listen to a little bit of uh, Quasi speaking and then let's listen to him sing so we can get a taste of what that's about. Remember what I taught you, Quasimodo. You are deformed. I am deformed. And you are ugly. And I am ugly. And these are crimes for which the world shows little pity. You do not comprehend. You're my defender. Out there, they'll revile you as a monster. I am monster. Out there, they will hate and scorn and jeer. Only monster. Why invite their curses and their consternation? Stay in here. Be faithful to me. Grateful to me. Do as I say. Obey and stay. Remember Quasimodo, this is your sanctuary. My sanctuary. Safe behind these windows and these parapets of stone, gazing at the people down below me. All my life I watch them as I hide appear alone, hungry for the histories they show me. All my life I memorize their faces Knowing them as they will never know me All my life I wonder how it feels to pass a day Not above them But part of them And out there living in the sun Give me one day out there. That is something I've noticed. Yeah. That's and it, and it, and I just didn't let it bother me. I just couldn't let it. I was no. like, I don't understand. But I was like, you know, when you're singing out there, you want to sing out there. Right. I mean, 
I mean, let's be real. Yeah, no one's gonna yeah, nobody's sing gonna out there you. with a... Yeah, with, with an a, affected... Yeah. Yeah. Because he really talks like this as he's talking, you know... Yeah, I mean, he's really... A, an, it's really a very different... It's what you would think Quasimodo would sound like. Right. Right? In the movie, they don't do it at all. Right. But in the in the stage production, they really do. Or he does. Mm-hmm. I don't know if... I, w- I would suppose every Quasimodo could make that choice. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. That would be an actor's choice, maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> Depending on the director that you have. It's hard to say. <laughs> it's hard to say. It is hard to say. Um, so, uh, wow, there's just so much music in this. Uh, do you have anything... Like, is there anything that you think stands out in this production? Like, is there something that they added to this production that you're like, wow, that is amazing. I mean, because there's an Esmeralda song that Frollo sings. There's a, you know, it is a very different feel. And, you know. I think, well, I think having, having a dedicated choir for, strictly for, not just, I mean, to say that they sing backup is, makes it sound so trivial. But it's they not, don't. They're That's a, not it. They're a, they're they are a character. Yeah, absolutely. Like the bells are a character. Absolutely. And I think having that while and usually when people people do this, you do you have you ask a choir to sing it with you. It's like if you're gonna do Beethoven nine, you have a choir, sing it with the orchestra. That's already like a an existing choir. Right. So I think that's one thing. The introduct the bells of Notre Dame in this version tells you a lot more about things. It gives you a much different story, doesn't it? Yeah, and again, this is spoiler, so skip ahead if you don't want to hear it. But you learn about Frollo's brother, yes. Leon, and yes. that Quasimodo is his nephew. Right, right, which I think is really important. Totally. It totally changes Frollo's decision mm-hmm. in this. Yeah. Um, while totally. it's still the same kind of decision, it it adds a new dimension to it. Yeah. Right. Makes him even more villainous. It makes him yes, exactly. Yeah. Makes him even even darker and deeper. And let's listen to a little bit of that. Go yeah. ahead and say what you're yeah. going to say. Well, I was going to say, and Patrick Page being one of the great bases. Oh my God, I love Patrick Page in American musical theater. I mean, Hellfire brings us his speaking voice alone is exactly. just exactly, and he is a great villain on Broadway. Yes, like he just Green is, Goblin. Exactly, yeah. he's just a great villain, wasn't he? Um, uh, Scar also. Did yes. he do Scar? Yeah, he was a Scar. Yeah, yeah um, he's just a great villain on Broadway. I love him. Yeah. Um, let's listen to a little bit of that beginning, uh, um, so that we get a taste of that because yeah. I think it's it's really different where it comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, from a from a story standpoint. Not like his profligate brother, Jean, who'd have none of Notre Dame. Though as brothers they loved one another, Frollo watched in despair and alarm. As Jean grew more wild and defied and defiled all the laws. The laws Must leave Jayan, this holy refuge where you've dwelled. Leave, but father. Sorry, Claude, but I've no choice. Your brother is expelled. And Frollo didn't hear from his brother for several years. Meanwhile, Frollo ascended uncommonly fast through the ranks of Notre Dame. Till he was named the Archdeacon at last and gave thanks to Notre Dame. And then one doleful day brought a message. And the name that it bore was 
Shayon! And concealing his face, Frollo stole to a place far away. Away from those red Shayon! Let me take you back. I'll bring you home. Brother, dearest, come with me where we will find a remedy And Notre Dame once more will be your sanctuary Healing you will be my goal, not just your body but your soul We'll be together in our holy sanctuary Enough, Claude! It's too late for me anyway but if you've truly discovered charity at this late date, there's someone you can help. A baby? Yours? Oh, a monster. It's God's judgment on you. The wicked shall not go unpunished. I should have known. I was a fool to think that you would look after him. Look after him? Me? He has nobody else. Take him. If you can find it in your heart. Shayon. Shayon! Yeah, that's really great to listen to. Let's, let's also listen to a little bit of uh, um, Hellfire. Yeah. To hear it, just because we want to hear him sing it, mm-hmm. honestly. If any, well, if really, any other right, reasons, right. just have Patrick Page totally. singing uh, that piece. I'm a righteous man, of my virtue I am justly proud. Beata Maria, you know I'm so much purer than the common vulgar, weak, licentious crowd. Then tell me, Maria, why I see her dancing there. Why her smoldering eyes still scorch my soul? I feel her, I see her. The sun caught in her raven hair is blazing in me out of all control. Like fire, hellfire, this fire in my skin, this burning. Desire is turning me to sin. It's not my fault. I'm not to blame. It is the gypsy girl, the witch, who set this flame. It's not my fault. It in God's plan, he made the devil so much stronger than a man. Protect me, Marie. Great. So, um, there are a couple other things. Let's let's take a quick listen to um, Esmeralda, mm-hmm. uh, which is a completely different. It ends the act, um, and in in great musical theater uh, fashion, it's a montage. Yeah, operatic uh, fashion. It's too. Operatic fashion too, right? And and uh, in Stephen Sondheim way, right, that there are multiple people singing, multiple feelings being sung. Yes. Right? Um, which I love. Right. Uh, I love that idea. And you know, like back in Rodgers and Hammerstein, you never would have done that. Right. It was one song, one person. Right. It's straight out of 
the Tonight Quintet from Westside. Completely. Which is straight out of the finale to Act 2 of Virgiletto. Right. That's you exactly right. End with an ensemble number. You have a quintet plus chorus. Um, you've got Frollo singing about what he wants to do to El- Esmeralda, which is, if she can't be with me, then I'm going to kill her. Right. You have Phoebus wanting to have a relationship with her. You have Quasimodo also wanting to have a relationship with her. Right. Then you have the whole congregation. Right, because they have an opinion, too. They do. They absolutely have an opinion. The choir congregation has an opinion. As we said, they're a character. So let's listen to a little bit of that. Fire, fire, smoke, and flame. Esmeralda, where are you? In this dark I call your name. Is that all that I can do? What have I done for Esmeralda? Why did I hear her words inside my head? And still I think of Esmeralda with my career and body left for dead. Out there, somewhere she is Somewhere she is could just listen to that i mean it's so hard to cut that down because there's so much good in it there's so much yeah there's so much good in it and you know one thing that really strikes me in this is um in our last we talked about how amazing frollo was um you know as an uh the actor that played it that uh you know tony J was it's when you think of frollo you really think of tony J mm-hmm. because that's what we've seen so much of right it really strikes me in that number how much Patrick Page leaned on that mm-hmm. and leaned on the inflections and the style of Frollo right. uh, in this piece. Because Patrick Page, let's be honest, I mean, he could stand on his own and do really? it his, you know, completely his own way. But really, right. you know, it's it's like when you see Aladdin, you know, obviously Freeman, Jonathan Freeman is doing it on Broadway and has been doing it on Broadway from, since the beginning. Right. Um, and he was, you know, Jafar. He was the voice of Jafar. But even... When I saw the tour come through Chicago, mm-hmm. how much weight and shadow mm-hmm. hangs over that role. Yeah. And yeah. I think I think you almost have to when you take on a role like that because that's what people expect. Right. Right? They expect. And and don't get me wrong, I hear a lot of Patrick Page in it also, but Right. But there are moments Right. that you're like that's almost exactly. But and there are certain things like if you listen to Aladdin, no one's saying Boy, that sounds like Brad Kane. Nobody. Or Simba. Boy, that sounds sounds like a young Matthew Broderick. Right. You know? Right. But Jeremy Irons, we remember. Ernie Sabella and Nathan Lane as Timon and Pumbaa, we remember. That's exactly right. That Those shadows loom large. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. They loom large. Um, you know, we could. that's a whole 
that's a whole discussion about characters that really, you know, the the originator of the character really puts weight yes. on whoever has totally. to do it next. You know, Nathan Lane is one of those actors mm-hmm. that when they when he does something, you know, we're talking about Timon and Pumbaa. There's a reason why the producers closed shortly after he and Matthew left. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. All right, let's move on. We're, we are way off the reservation here. Um, <laughs> home on the Range? That, uh, I'm yeah. saying you want to do Home on the Range for the next episode? I, I actually made comments about Home on the Range on one of my podcasts. Yes, uh, I heard that. Yes, uh, yeah. Um, there's only one good song in that sh- in that movie. Bonnie Raitt? Uh, okay, that was not the song, I think. But um, And I love Bonnie Raitt. But that's it was not... written about 9-11. I, I, so I have yeah, a, I like, understand. Oh, I understand. But yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's not the... No, it's not. Um, thank God it's the comedic song. Poor the... Alan Menken. Oh, God. I just had to have heard him. Just heard him. That early aught period, it was like the 80s. It was like the Black Cauldron era. Yeah, they just didn't know what to do. Yeah, they, were, they weren't they were sure. They just really Post-Renaissance, of... like, what do we do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brother was... Bear, that's what we do. Brother Bear's what we, we release do. on a Saturday. And and Brother Bear, I, I like Brother Bear. Is it a masterpiece? No. No. It's not. <laughs> it's not one that I walked out on, but... No. And I have walked out on movies before. <laughs> have you walked out on Disney movies before? No. Okay. I don't think I've ever walked out on a Disney movie. Okay. Um... No, I cannot say I've ever walked out on a Disney movie. Okay. There's always something redeeming about it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about me being a, claiming to be a big Disney fan. It's just hard for me to walk out on them. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean I don't walk out and go, Ugh, Woof. what was that <laughs> exactly? <laughs> I believe on Home on the Range, I walked out and went, well, I'm only going to see that one once. You know, I think that was... <laughs> don't need to buy that DVD. Don't need to buy that one. I'll buy it for collection, but it's going to remain wrapped. Um, I think that's what uh, that's how that one goes. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about uh, Act 2 yeah. of this. Because Esmeralda, that brilliant piece, closes Act 1. Mm-hmm. There's a piece in here that we need to listen to. Yeah. Um, towards the very beginning called Flight uh, into Egypt. Mm-hmm. Which... Very interesting choice. Let's listen to a little bit of it. For I kept safe and free The holy family On their flight into Egypt Land of the date and palm I often shelter to her who is no Tradom. If that's what I could do, then Quasimodo, you can too. But even if I could go out there, how can I find her? The amulet she gave you. But what is it? Just a web and a jewel. It doesn't mean anything. No, it must be a clue made with guile and art. And she gave it to you because she knows you're smart. Think, Quasimodo. Is it hopeless? Or can you see in it something you've seen before? Seen before? Wait, I know this. Look at this line. That's a bridge, that's a street, and this jewel, it must show where we're supposed to meet. You've done it, Quasimodo, this we're certain of. It's a map! It's a map! Look, it's the city seen from above. It's a map of the city from above. 
Okay, so I guess it's a beautiful piece. Um, but I, I'll be honest with you, Aaron. I am really just mad on this piece in this musical. I, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they can't all be winners. No, <laughs> they cannot all be winners. And when you have this much music, I mean, there is a ton of music in this show. It, yeah. It's, it's a, pretty much sung through. Yeah. I, you know, again, I think without seeing it, it's hard to. It's like it's like when you're listening to an album that you've never heard of, and you 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 can try to follow along, but there's always right. one or two where you're like, I I don't know where that fits in. Yeah. Without seeing it, it's hard to know whether it's really effective or not. Yeah, I think part of my problem also is is that they make Quasimodo, they it really displays Quasimodo as being really super insecure. Right. And and I understand the insecurity of of. Quasimodo, mm -hmm. but also one of the things that I love about Quasimodo is that even though he feels that way, he still loves Esmeralda and will do anything for Esmeralda, mm -hmm. right? And I feel like this is almost saying that he just doesn't have that in him. And while that may be truer to the Victor Hugo novel, right? Mm -hmm. I, you know, that's that's part of my problem with it. They're trying to convince him to go save her, and I don't. I'm not sure that he needs convincing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It's, uh, yeah, it's 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 hard to say without knowing what has happened, or seeing the stage right. version. Really, what the what quasi how quasi develops as a character, from what we don't get on the recording. Right, right, and there's a lot we don't get in this. Right. There is, even though there's a ton of music on this. Ton recording. of music, yeah. Ton of music. But there is, I mean, as we as we know, since quasi speaks in kind of slurred speech, there is, you know, there's a right. There's a fair amount of book stuff that, you know, we don't know. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. Great. So we've just thrown that one out. Yeah. We've said, we've said, Alan. Cut this. Cut this. <laughs> Can you imagine saying that to Alan? Oh, no. Um, no, no. I'm so never. sorry, Mr. Mankin. Yeah, exactly, Mr. Mr. Mankin. Please. <laughs> uh, and please come on to the podcast whenever you like. Yes. Yeah. Um, either of you or both at the same time. That would be amazing. Or Tom Schumacher. Uh, or Tom Schumacher. I need to reach out to him. I wonder if he'd do it. I've never heard him do a podcast. No, I take that back. There is a podcast. There is a Disney Broadway yep. musical that Pat podcast that Patrick Hines did, which I love. Patrick, you can come on my podcast anytime too. Um, yeah. That I love that yeah. he does, and he does talk on that. Yes, uh, mainly when they're trying to advertise one of their shows. Right. But uh, but still, I don't care. It's great, and Patrick Hines is great. If you don't know his podcast, look up Patrick Hines podcast. Theater talk. Theater, oh, no, talk, sorry, theater sorry. people. Theater people. Theater people is great. He also does Broadway backstory, which is brilliant, brilliant. I love it. Um, it's his. He's done two seasons of it, and they tell the tell the history of the making of the shows. Mm -hmm. So good, mm -hmm. so good. Um, all right, so we go to uh, the Court of Miracles. Yes, we go to find the gypsies. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, after all of that happens, and Esmeralda saves Phoebus and Quasi, we have the love song. Yes. That we are missing in the movie. Yes. Cut from the movie, but in the orchestration, in the score still. Right. In a place of miracles. This really is the the love song between the two, right? Here we are. Um, so let's listen Nearly to a little bit of it, uh, and then we can talk about it. From two worlds that have rarely met, but somehow you have made me someone new. Traveling far on a journey That's the longest I've taken yet Now I'm asking if you will let me come with you Though our lives are tattered and torn 
All I'm feeling now is reborn. I must be in a place of miracles. Where the blind can see. In a place of miracles. A miracle you've brought to me. The soldier and the gypsy. I might wish with all my might No face as hideous as my face Was ever meant for heaven's light All oh, this, this time, it's time I've I learned No love will be returned my life would be spent alone To one who's born to be alone So as you listen to that, and we didn't get to listen to the whole thing, but really this is the moment that Phoebus and Esmeralda declare their love, kind of. Mm-hmm. Right? They're on this journey together and, and all of that. But it's also a really important moment of Quasimodo, Quasimodo realizing that the love will not be returned. Yeah. His love for Esmeralda is not going to be returned. Um, it's a beautiful quartet. And it's uh, it's the song we don't get in... Like I said, it's the song we don't get in the movie. Yeah. It replaces that moment. Yeah. Because there, there's, a, there's a realization that Quasi has it, but it happens earlier in the movie. It happens right, right before Heaven's Light. Right. Yeah, it's... And I think it rightfully belongs in the second act. I agree. I think it's too early. I think it's too early in... The movie. I yeah. think it happens too early in the movie. Yeah. I like this song. I feel like... I feel it's very clever how they did this. Clearly they're thinking, okay, middle of act two, we gotta go. Because I think this moment... The moment where Quasi realizes that I think is worthy of his own standalone song. Right. But here it's right. wrapped up with the quartet being also with Clopin and the Gypsies. So I think, I think it... You know, I like it, but I... You know, the Quasi in me as... You know, someone who's been off, as we all are in that position before, you know, right. of wanting someone's affections when they're, when you have, when you have an affection for them, but it's not returned. It also changes, it. yeah, it also changes the meaning of Heaven's Light in the first act. Mm-hmm. It takes, and, and when you listen to it, it really takes out the, she's never going to love me right. aspect of it mm-hmm. and puts it into the second act. Uh, and I think that for me... That works. Now, we talked about, um, as we were listening to this, we talked about the fact that it's obvious that this is late. This is later in Mencken's career. Not that his career is over. I'm not talking about that. Right. But this is certainly not 90s Mencken mm-hmm. that we're listening to here. This right. is certainly a more established, more confident in himself Mencken. I'm, I'm trying to be nice yes. about it. Right? Yes. Uh, because it's a melody that we've heard before. Maybe not in this yeah. exact form. Yes, but there, there is a well. You know, there's a Mencken sound, right? And as as one as a composer has a career, 
and especially time to, to, to make mistakes and develop through that career and figure out what your voice is, you are at, at some point you are bound to, to having it being, someone will say, you know, well, that, that's, you know, that's, that's a Mencken sound. Right. Or, Not that that's a bad thing. No, that's a bad thing. It means that you have a unique voice. Right. But then when you get somewhere and you're like, and when and when you're being critical as we are and think, you know, I've heard that before, you know, that's when... Yeah. You know. And that's what we're doing. We are being right. critical. Right. And we're being much more critical than the 95% of the world. Right. right. There's a very small percentage of people that will listen this critically to what we're doing. Right. So, and we understand that. I yeah. get that. Yeah. I totally get that. Um, great. We have a couple of, uh, we have a congregation song talking about justice in Paris. Um, we have uh, Sanctuary, uh, Reprise of Sanctuary, again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frollo sings that a lot. Yeah, what I love is that throughout Act 2 especially, I find the 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 fight song in Beauty and the Beast mm-hmm. and the fight song in in Hunchback similar. Yes. Have both sort of have this bum, 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 this... Um, ominous and always kind of advancing on you yeah moving with uh, momentum feeling yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. that's that's very true and it's very present in act 2 with frollo's reprises and as with the there's more of the choir singing latin texts yes in act 2 cuz as yes. as things start to build yeah yeah it's true yeah it's very true um so then we get to someday mhm which is the love duet right. between Esmeralda and Phoebus. And we don't have that really in the movie. We have it in the end credits mm-hmm. um, uh, sung, but we don't have it here. Um, so let's listen to a couple minutes of that and then let's talk about it. And let's talk about it in the context of how it's different than how we interpret it in the movie. Mm-hmm. That I live to see a day of justice dawn And though I will die Long before that morning comes I'll die while believing still It will come Life will be fairer 
the world's older when things have changed. Okay, so listening to even just a little bit of that, um, really different than the pop version that we get at the end of the movie. Um, yes. uh, you know, there's actually meaning behind this, whereas the right. pop version is just a pop song. It's just bad. Um, yeah, she's just, exactly. She's just, she's truly singing her feelings. One thing that really strikes me in this is that, and they even bring it up, is God bless the outcasts. Mm -hmm. Like, and they don't even try to hide it, right? It's like right there. She's not singing, and then you hear God bless the outcasts, right? So talk about that. I know you have a, a pretty good feel for what they're doing there. Yeah, so th what's interesting is that, so both pieces are in what feel like triple meter. Mm -hmm. So you've got a God Help the Outcast, which is in three, and this is in six eight, which is compound meter, duple technically, but it feels that it's the triplet that gets the beat. So yat da 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 So it is related both musically to God Bless the Outcasts, but um, like the first you hear an oboe in the introduction going da 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 da, which is the exact same notes, melody, as it occurs in God Bless the Outcasts. Right. God Help the Outcasts. God Help the Outcasts, right. Right. So it is, it is, like, it's a, it's not even referencing, it's a direct quote. Right. Of God Help the Outcasts. Yeah. Um, and then also you have the melody of Someday, which is the same melody as Olim, which opens the show. Right. Um, which is very interesting. Da 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 da. -da. Right, it's the it's, same it's melodic contour. The, the, the melodic contour. Now, yeah. is that as a composer mm -hmm. and arranger yourself? Yes. When you start composing, are you thinking that, or does that kind of just happen? Do you understand what I'm asking? Are you like, I really want this to be a recall of her journey? If it, it it depends, you know, and most of what I do is arrange and orchestrate. Uh -huh. I would not call myself a composer. That's a totally different talent and brain that I do not possess. <laughs> um, but especially like in orchestrating, it, it happens a lot in orchestration where if you want the audience to recall an emotion or an idea, you will place these light motifs, like we talked in the first episode, yes. here and there. So. Yeah, and, and Mencken is the smart enough composer where, like, he put it there for a reason. Right. Like, I, I, there's, I discovered once, and I'm probably, I'm certainly not the only person I would imagine to discover uh -huh. this. In West Side Story, we talk about how this interval of a minor seventh, there's yeah. a place yeah. for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. minor seventh is um, somewhere in West Side Story. Right. And, and it, it talks about the, you know, the longing and the forbidden love. Romeo and Juliet. Right. And then in Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet, that same interval is used. And that's not by it. I have no proof of this, but I'm willing to bet that's not a, co a coincidence. Bernstein knew exactly what he was referencing. One of the musical geniuses of... The 20th ever, century of America 20th century, of all time. Right? Of all time, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they're composers when, you know, when referencing something like West Side and Romeo and Juliet, there's a connection there. Yeah, so it makes a purposeful connection. Yeah, so it makes sense that Bernstein would reference the Tchaikovsky here. So, And I think Mencken's the same way. There's, there's a reason why the melody of the opening is the same as Someday. Right. 
Yeah. So it's it's a very clever tool that um, that composers use that again oftentimes goes unnoticed. Right. On on a but but subliminally is very noticeable because it makes the audience feel absolutely and and I love those. I love that mm-hmm. about it, right? And I love the fact that as you're as I was watching the show, I'm not sure if I would notice it. I might be right. so wrapped up in what was going on, mm-hmm. but it still has that emotional effect. Right. So cuz again, and if you if you listen to our first episode, I apologize for being repetitive, but the Latin of Olim is once long ago God arrived in this age of brightness, he will come again. And someday the lyrics in someday, you know, someday we will be wiser, you know, thinking about a time when they can be together. You know, it's kind of like somewhere, you know, talking about this place that where they will be accepted together in the future. Yes. I mean, is it has a relationship to that opening Latin translation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, I really like it. I really like it in this context. As much as I, I, as much as it was, it was okay at the end of the movie, I really like it in its context. Yeah. And for you music nerds out there, I was mentioning while we were listening to the piece, it's interesting that this is really the only time in the score you can hear piano, and it's just piano and voice, like accompaniment, almost as if it's like a, like in a solo recital setting. Right. Right. Which which is an interesting orchestrational choice yeah well they obviously wanted to simplify they wanted to simplify it down to which base yes um it's raw yeah right okay so um you know we're really almost to the end of this Mm -hmm. um there's a lot of things that we've uh talked about there's a lot there's some congregational things um you know congregation slash choir because they use them interchangeably in Mm -hmm. this but one thing that we need to talk about, I think, is Made of Stone. Yeah. Uh, and the piece Made of Stone. I, I love this piece. Mm-hmm. I love this piece. Yeah. Um, let's listen to a little bit of it, and then we'll talk Quasimodo, you must try to free yourself. The girl needs your help. Quiet. Go away. You're the only one who can save her now. You know what happens when I try to help. I only make things worse. You, you don't, don't believe that. <laughs> How do you know what I believe? What do you know of me? What do you know of all the things I feel? You're only made of stone. (laughs) Who is it that you see? Instead of seeing what I am for real, this twisted flesh and bone, you're a liar. With every new excuse you try out, you only make me want to cry out. Would that I were made of stone like you? You don't mean that! Just take some time to- You give such good advice. So why has not one single word you've said been any help at all? And you who sound so nice, the more your dreams and fancies fill my head. The farther that I fall, shut my brain down. If I was senseless, I'd prefer it. Another gargoyle on this turret, spitting rain down to the stones below. I've wasted my faith believing in saints of plaster. But the only one worth believing in was my master. He's 
the one who never lied. He told me it was cruel outside. He told me how I had to hide. His words were cold as stone, but they were true. Not like you. Take all the dreams you've sown. Take all your lies and leave me alone. All right. So, uh, wow. That piece. Um, it rivals out there. It really rivals out there. It does. So here's, and, and as we were listening to this is what I said to you. Mm-hmm. This is really Stephen Schwartz. Yeah. This is I. This is Children of Eden. This is Wicked. Um, like it is his. Yeah. It is his. He, we're using his language. Yes. In this, we're using his musical language. In this, it is not um, Alan Menken's language. It's not his choice of writing. No, and you can tell because Alan Menken, while can write in many different genres, like he can do the doo-wop thing. Like in Little Shop, he could do the disco thing in Sister Act. Right. Rock isn't his language. Right. He right. can do most other things. and But this sounds like As Long As You're Mine. Yes, exactly. From Wicked. Yes, it does. Like it's a, and, and Stephen Schwartz is really good at mixing, making it sound rocky, but still musical theatery. Yeah. Yeah, I love this piece. Yeah, and I not only I love not only because it's different than anything else. I also love the journey that we see Quasimodo go through. Um, one thing I think is interesting is at the beginning, because he's talking to the statues, mm-hmm. he doesn't speak with his speech impediment. Right at the beginning of this. Right, he is speaking normally. Right, um, and then sings normally and goes right into it because it's to to emphasize that this is in his head. Right. And again this is a song that was written for Der Glockner for the original stage adaptation with for him and the gargoyles and obviously there are no gargoyles in this iteration um but yeah everyone else you know the the congregation takes the place of you know the gargoyles are talking to himself or right. his inner thoughts yeah as, yeah, as yeah, yeah saints and... and the congregation is almost like the statues on Notre Dame right like the the images that i've seen and i have not seen this per, this show yet um uh, the images I've seen are showing them in gray and in a stone-like look. Right. Right? So um, that's interesting. I think before we wrap up here, I think we really need to talk about the cast, mm-hmm. um, this cast. Uh, Michael Arden as Quasimodo, uh, Sierra Renee as Esmeralda, Andrew Samansky as Phoebus, Eric Lieberman as Clopin, and uh, Patrick Page as Frollo, which we've talked about. Mm-hmm wonderful casting it's it's really great michael arden is a great he's also a director i did not know that yeah so michael arden is a great musical theater performer but he's also the artistic director for uh for uh deaf west i did know that and he dr- i did not i didn't make that connection yeah. so he directed the spring awakening i was on broadway with yeah. with both uh deaf and hearing actors yes um which anybody that saw that production said it was it was wonderful. magnificent yeah 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 um so and so he has he's a rare type that both goes from the acting to the directing to the artistic director which is the other side of the right the business point. side more of the business side. more of the business side yeah um he and he, he's w- terrific voice wonderful um just he, I, I really appreciate his take on this role yeah and 
I agree. Fantastic voice. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, I think Sierra Renee is great as Esmeralda in this. Yeah. Um, now it is it is certainly not cabaret. We talked about she is definitely a Broadway singer. Right. It's not Heidi Mollenauer. No. It is not. No. It is not. Um, Eric uh, Andrew Szymanski, I really like as Phoebus. I think he sings the role really, really well, mm-hmm. um, and is just a pleasure to listen to. Yeah, and again, provides a lot more insight into Phoebus than that's right. Sort of the comedic, two dimensional. That's right. Disney as a matter of fact, I think there's person. less comedy in him. Yes. Than in the the as you said the two dimensional, right? You know, animated picture. Um, Eric uh, Lieberman is great as Clopan. I don't know that he adds anything to Clopan. Do mm. you? I feel like it's, it's it's hard it's hard to tell without seeing. Him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. But he's he's got those those notes though. Oh, he does. The, and those those make or break the tune. Yes, they do. He's got them, um, which is probably why it's going to be tough for some groups to be doing this show. I'm guessing to find somebody that can do that. Also, and really, if you don't have a large orchestra, you shouldn't be doing the show. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that, right? And you, how many are going to be in that orchestra? Five. No, we're not yeah. doing it. And if you, if none of you agree, you can all paste on the Facebook page. But that's I'm an right. Advocate of full orchestration, <laughs> always. Imagine that. Imagine that. Uh, and then Patrick Page, we've already talked about his Frollo, which is brilliant. Really He's, wonderful. Uh, amazing. Wow, Aaron. Well, first of all, I think to wrap this up is that I love this theater piece. Yes. Totally. I love this piece. and We will um, do it someday. We need to. Someday. Someday. When uh, we are wiser. When we are, <laughs> when we are wiser. Right. Um, and maybe if I'm older, I'll be a bass and I'll get to do Frollo. I'll never be a bass. Who, who am I fooling? Um, I, I just love this piece. Yeah. And I think I love the stage version more than the film version. Yeah. I, re- I really think it's... An underappreciated Alan Menken, Stephen Schwartz gem. I mean, it's it's so complex and it's so... I mean, they really got to do what they wanted artistically with the stage version. And you, it's obvious why why it's not Disney Presents. Yeah, I mean, it's, completely. It's not happy. It's all the fears that the Christian right and all those people had about the movie right. come to life. Right. And it's it's not happy. Uh, she died. There's she died. I mean, it's it's a real. I want to say Greek tragedy, but French tragedy. Yeah, it is. Yeah, totally. I love it. Um, I love listening to this recording. I I am dying to see a professional version of this. Yeah. Uh, show. I so I want to do it, it in a cathedral. Yeah. Oh. Just have bells and just. Oh huge my god! Show. Can you imagine? Oh. Mm-hmm. That'd be gorgeous. I would love that. Uh, and maybe we will do it. We will do it. We will. We're going to do it. At some point. We're absolutely going to do it. I, I totally believe that. Yeah. Um, it has been so amazing to have you on. It's been wonderful. I love it. And anytime I can share my nerdiness about yeah, Disney course. music. <laughs> Please. I'll come anytime. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know your schedule is pretty, pretty, you're pretty packed. You're a popular guy uh, with everything you've got going on. Lots of musicals. Lots of musicals. Yeah. It's a, it's a musician's life, right? It is. It is. Our um, performer's life. We, we signed up for, we knew it was going to be busy. That's exactly right. Um, busy and not a lot of pay. Um, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, I think that's why we have to be busy, but please feel free to come on anytime. Thank you. Uh, if I you're like, you. I really want to talk about the Lion King. Let's do it. Yeah. I mean, cause that can be another two part or two. Sure. Right. Um, so feel free to, to do that. And if you really want to talk about radio Disney, 
I'll be happy to. <laughs> no, I don't. I have, nothing to, to you. I have nothing to say about it. I didn't listen to it. I just thought maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I'd be happy to host. I'll turn on the recorder. We'll do a Fantasia one. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's, because that's a that's a fascinating and that's a fascinating history. Oh yes. Um. Right. Uh, clear up to Fantasia 2000, which I love. I, I I love it too. I love it. I know there are people that don't. I love it. Although we can't speak of the conductor anymore. No, we cannot. Oy. He is. <laughs> <laughs> look up, uh, just look up some news about um, Metropolitan Opera, and yes, you'll find yeah. out about why we can't talk about the, comp- the conductor yes, anymore. Yes. Um, but it's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you so it's been my pleasure. much. Um, hey, as always, uh, leave your opinions and thoughts on uh, Facebook, um, and we'll love to have that conversation because we definitely want this to be a conversation, not just a one-way dialogue. And that's it for uh, this two-episode beauty of uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the theatrical, go out and get it, find it, and listen to it. Um, And if not, then just enjoy the movie soundtrack again. Well, that was an abrupt end to the podcast. Um, I don't know what happened there. Anyway, uh, hope you enjoyed the podcast. Um, We'll have Aaron on again, like I said, in the future. Uh, Such a great guest with great knowledge. If you have any comments or just want to be a part of the conversation, you can find us on Facebook at Magic Music Review. Uh, you can also find me at Twitter. I'm Disney Music Dude on Twitter. Um, and you can find us on our website, which is magicmusicreview.com. It's no longer under construction. Uh, so magicmusicreview.com is our website. Love to hear from you. Love to hear your ideas and your thoughts on The Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, the stage version or the movie version, since it's kind of a twofer with this episode. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Now it's time to say goodbye to all our company. M-I-C. See you real soon. K-E-Y. Why? Because we like you. M-I-C.